Welcome to Kent Hunter's Prescriptions from a Church Doctor, presented by Church Doctor Ministries. Welcome to Episode 6. Hi, I'm Ken Hunter, founder of Church Doctor Ministries, author, consultant, and teacher of everything I can get my hands on to help the local church become more effective for the Great Commission to make disciples of all people. If that sounds like it was uh, memorized and said from memory, that's exactly the purpose of Church Doctor Ministries. My colleagues live by that motto. That is a culture that we are committed to, and we love helping Christians and churches with the whole wonderful privilege God has given to us to make disciples of all people and disciple Christians into the amazing and honored privilege of serving the King of the universe. Well, have you ever wondered how the reformer Martin Luther came up with 95 theses? I mean, I thought I should come up with 95 theses because he did. And I don't know, it just seemed like a big idea at the time. And I started writing and I got partway through and I thought, well, gosh, I can't make 95. And then I thought some more and I prayed about it and I was working with the church and I thought, oh man, there's a whole bunch more I haven't thought about. I haven't put down yet in theses. And lo and behold, I made 95 theses also. Not because it's a magic number. It's not even a biblical number, but it ended up being 95 theses also. And for all I know, there's some stuff that I missed. But for what I've got, I hope and pray it is not just something interesting for you to listen to. My hope and prayer is that this will get your wheels turning, get your prayers ignited to say, Lord, how can we ignite the church how can we equip the church to be the body of Christ in all of its glory and all of its power to be a force in this world to change the eternal destiny of people and bring a sense of goodness to the society in which we live? Yeah, that's why I do what I do. I hope you'll receive these with the posture and tone that I desperately want to communicate and the kind of love I have for you, the listener, and every Christian who cares enough to want to do better at being church. So having said that, let's go to 48. Number 48 is a little on the long side. It's got three sentences, but I'll go through them slowly in case you're taking notes. Number 48, there is no biblical precedent in Scripture for elections to positions of leadership in Christ's church. The next sentence continues. No one called to Christian ministry should lose an election in the presence of their Christian family, meaning the church. And the last sentence is this. This is counterintuitive to the love of Jesus and the limitless opportunities to serve demonstrated by Jesus Christ. I know that for some people, the whole idea of nominations and elections and votes and Robert's Rules of Order are like sacred because, well, you've heard it. We've always done it that way. Well, we haven't always done it that way. If you go back in history, the Christian church in the New Testament didn't do all this stuff. And so where is it in the Bible? It's not there. The only election there was in the Bible is that after Judas was no longer 
in the picture because he committed suicide after betraying Jesus. The disciples cast lots and came up with this guy that somebody nominated. And that's the only time there's ever an election. And guess what? You never hear the guy again in Scripture. He never shows up again in the Bible. Not even a quick reference. Furthermore, the Apostle Paul becomes the real 12th apostle because Jesus picked him, not a bunch of people filling out ballots. Go figure. It's almost like the scripture saying to us, all right, here's what the disciples did. They were strung out already. They were really, really shaken up. Jesus had died, then rose again. Like what amazing a thing could happen next? And they've gone through all this stuff and they're short, one of the 12, and they thought, well, you know, we don't know what else to do, so let's try this. And it didn't work. It truly didn't work. And you want to use that as an example for having elections? Come on. Man, look at the whole of Scripture and put it into context. So why do we have elections? I don't know. I really don't know. I mean, if two people want to run for some kind of ministry in the church, man, divide up the work and do it. <laughs> I mean, you never run out of stuff to do in the ministry of God, especially if you're doing it right. Yeah, it's just crazy what we do. And I do feel bad for the person who's willing to serve God Almighty, puts his name up for nomination, and then loses the election in front of his church family. Like, what's up with that? Whoever thought that up? That's like the most cruel thing and the dumbest thing I ever heard of. And then we wonder, why can't we get more people involved in ministry? Well, put them to work in the first place and quit making them a loser in front of their friends. It does make you wonder, doesn't it? Where do we get some of this stuff? Number 49, biblical churches are not operated by elected boards or councils or by congregational meetings with votes. Those chosen to lead the congregation should be identified according to a lifestyle of demonstrated commitment to Bible study and the passion to become more like Christ, as well as they should have the spiritual gift of leadership. That's who ought to lead churches. And the leaders ought to choose the next leaders. Now, why is it so important that they have the lifestyle of demonstrated commitment to Bible study? Well, when you lead in that concept, it means you are making decisions about the direction of your church or the direction of people in your church. And if you lead as a Christian, you certainly remember that part of the Lord's Prayer that says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want what you want, God, here on earth, in our church, just like everything that takes place perfectly in heaven, where your will is perfect. So we pray and ask God, your will is what we want. We want what you want. Well, the Bible study issue, the lifestyle of being in Scripture and being deep in Scripture is the only way you can figure out God's will. There is no other book that has God's will in it but the Bible. So why would you pick someone? It doesn't matter if they're the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. Why would they be the leader of a church if they're a new Christian? If they've been a Christian for like six months, being the CEO of a Fortune 500 company does not qualify you to be a leader in a church. It absolutely doesn't do that because you're not steeped in the will of God. We don't want to know what it says 
in the bylaws of your corporation, this is a whole different deal. This isn't a business. This is the Lord's business called a church. It's also called the body of Christ. And if you are steeped in the scripture, you know all those analogies to the body of Christ, the sheep and the shepherd, the vine and the branches. You know all those things and how they operate. And you also are very clear about the priority for doing God's will. How in the world did we get into a situation where we have all these boards and councils or groups, whatever you call them, board of directors, unbelievable stuff that we call them, and elect these people by a congregational vote, which if you have everybody in your congregation that votes, you surely have a bunch of people that are baby Christians, even if they're 60 years old. Well, what would they know? What would give them wisdom to define who should be in and who should be out and who should be a leader in the church? How would they have a clue? You're looking for the people that have been around the church for years and have, have been in the scripture for years and know about the counsel of God. I don't know. You wonder how even the church gets anything done the way that we have drifted from scripture. And I don't mean that as a slap on the wrist or a critical comment. It just is the way it is. And it's frustrating and it frustrates people and it frustrates the work of God. So pray about that. Get your Bible out. See what it says. Run the church in the culture of the kingdom. Number 50, decisions made by leaders are driven by consensus. <laughs> Did you think I was going to say votes? No. Decisions made by leaders are driven by consensus. Here's the rest of number 50. When consensus is not achieved, the directive is a focus on Scripture and prayer. Well, I could just hear some church council members or board of directors members saying, why would we spend time on that? We've got too much on the agenda. <laughs> You've got too much on the agenda, all right. Why would we be involved in scripture and prayer? We got to make some decisions before 10 o'clock. <laughs> you know, I want to get home and watch my favorite TV show. <laughs> hey, that's real. I know it's real. Yeah, I've been around too much to not know that. Let me continue number 50 here. If consensus is still not achieved, the decision is delayed. So many people are driven by urgency. The decision is delayed. If God's in a hurry, you'll get the answer. If not, then wait on God. And that's exactly the last part of this. If consensus is still not achieved, the decision is delayed with the intent to, quote, wait on the Lord, end quote. If that sounds familiar, that's because it's in the Bible. It takes faith to wait on the Lord. It takes humility to say, we want God to be in charge, not us, because we are not fit to make these decisions without God's input. That's a character issue. It should be a character issue that you look for when you look for leaders. Number 51 the lead pastor of a congregation is called by Christ to lead the decision-making process. And that's all there is to that one. It's short. I'll read it again. The lead pastor of a congregation is called by Christ to lead the decision-making process. Now, right away, there are going to be people who say, why should the pastor lead the decision-makers in the group? That seems like it's giving too much authority to the pastor. Well, let me ask you the question, who has been trained the most in the group? Let me ask you another question. Who spends 
every waking moment, including some sleepless nights, thinking about the church. Because when you're a pastor, that is a role that is 24-7. Now, I hope you get a day off. That's an important part of Scripture that talks about balance, keeping your health. But even on your day off, I know you are never without praying and thinking about your church, because that's what good pastors do. So why wouldn't that be the person to lead the leaders? I think that makes a lot of sense. The disciples had leaders. Of course, Jesus was a leader. But then we know Peter became a leader. In some churches, they would look to Paul as the leader. I don't see him having a council meeting and everybody have an equal vote. Or worse yet, everybody having a vote with the pastor. But even the vote idea is a dumb idea. The lead pastor should lead the leaders of the church. Who else spends that much time thinking about praying for, working for the church? Besides that, who else is called by God to be the leader? I also know there's some pastors who don't want that responsibility. Well, if you don't want that responsibility, then go be an assistant pastor somewhere. There's nothing unholy or diminishing about that idea. Go be an assistant pastor. Because if you haven't got the gift to lead, you shouldn't be leading anyway. But if you have the gift, you should be leading. That's what the Holy Spirit intends for you. So the pastor should be the leader. Number 52, Christians must be liberated from the busyness that plagues most churches. This is a really big deal. The things that churches get into, and somebody comes up with a big idea and says, hey, I think we ought to do this. Pastors don't like to say no, so they say yes. Then another program is added, then another, then another. Then there are layers of programs. And what we've got is a bunch of tired out people primarily doing busy work that does not grow the church, does not grow people, and it plagues the church. So number 52 is Christians must be liberated from the busyness that plagues most churches. We have a bunch of burned out people in churches, and what they do obviously isn't growing the kingdom or the church would be exploding and most churches are declining and most people are worn out. To unpack that a little bit further, number 53, rummage sales, craft sales, parade floats, bazaars, all that stuff rob energy and time from the mission of Christianity. I know that sounds like Ebenezer Scrooge to some people because these things have become elevated to holiness in Scripture. And I'm sorry to say they are not. They are not holy to Scripture. Most of them are not really avenues of reaching people for Jesus or growing Christians in kingdom culture. They're just not. They just keep people busy. And that busyness is killing your church. One tired out person after another. Number 54. Fundraising activities drain the energy of those in the church. Energy that should otherwise be directed to the primary mission of Christ to seek and save the lost, which, of course, is a quote out of the Bible. I can't believe how many bake sales a church can have. Think of all the time put together 
So the people who, at least in America, who are already overweight can feel obligated to buy something baked that has more calories than they should get, and they sort of baptize it Christian because the money's going for a good cause, whatever it is in the church. It's ludicrous. I mean, can you imagine a chapter on bake sales where Jesus and the disciples bake something to sell to non-Christians or even to other Christians, other followers of Jesus who really don't need it? It's just crazy. What about car washes where the youth want to go on a mission trip and they have a car wash? You know what? People who are not Christians who buy that baked goods or come to the car wash with their car, you know what idea they get? All the church wants is my money. I know people have heard that before. That is a very common saying of unchurched people. And I know what church people say. Yeah, that's because those TV evangelists They used to be on TV, and all they do is ask for money. Not so. The real issue is right in your lap. It's the bake sales, the car washes, the rummage sales, all the stuff you do, primarily because your people have not been culturally trained to give generously to their church. If you had spent the same amount of time discipling people, you'd never even think about a fundraiser because you wouldn't have to. I know it's hard to believe. I know how ingrained this is in churches. It's absolutely crazy. Number 55, Jesus talked about money more than he talked about prayer. Money represents our crystallized sweat. Many churches abuse the sensitive issues about money. For example, the youth sponsor a spaghetti dinner to earn money for missions, and the trip is really a good idea, but the way to finance it is horrible. The way to finance it, church people invite their unchurched friends and neighbors to the spaghetti dinner. Why? To pay for the mission trip. And for many, it's the only time unbelievers are invited to the church. Oh, except for rummage sales and bazaars and a host of other fundraisers. And so Christians conclude, yeah, these are good things. Non-Christians conclude, all the church wants is my money. Why wouldn't they? Yep. Number 55, Jesus talked more about money more often than prayer. The money represents our crystallized sweat, and many churches abuse the sensitive issues about money. Number 56, research shows half of the Christians who attend churches are unclear about the primary purpose of the church or mission of the church to make disciples by going, baptizing, and teaching. Now, that's hard to believe. I'll read that one again. Research shows Half of the Christians who attend churches are unclear about the primary purpose or mission of the church to make disciples by going, baptizing, and teaching. What we have discovered through research is that actually it's 57% of people in our database, instead of saying that the church is to make disciples, pick the answer that goes like this. Primary purpose of the church is to provide a place of fellowship to share God's love with one another, not outside people, but with one another. That the goal of the church is to provide fellowship with one another. The challenge with that is that this is the definition of a spiritual country club. Again, I don't mean that as offensive, but it's what we see again and again 
when we analyze churches. Number 57, most churches try to grow by advertising, providing the latest technology with signs or the best locations or awesome websites. This does not work to reach unchurched people. I'll tell you who it attracts. It does attract some. First of all, Christians who are unhappy with their present church and they're searching for some other church for a myriad of reasons, some good and some terrible, but it does work for them. People who are already Christians looking for another church. Or number two, it works for lapsed Christians who've been away from the church for quite a while and usually because they've had some kind of recent traumatic life challenge, they started looking at church again. And so the technology, the signs, best locations, awesome websites, draw those people. But to reach the unchurched, congregational leaders will equip every member to cultivate their own mission field of relationships, their social networks. So 57, I will summarize it. Number 57, most churches try to grow by advertising, providing the latest technology and signs, best locations, and awesome websites. To reach the unchurched, congregational leaders will equip every member to cultivate their own mission field of relationships, their social networks. And guess what? The largest group of people in America, the largest group of people in Canada, the largest group of people in most countries of the world are the unchurched. Last one, number 58, many Christians, as well as some experts in Christianity, some consultants, some authors, support programs that will grow congregations. Yet Jesus clearly told the disciples, quote, I will build my church, end quote. And when Jesus said that, he clearly told his followers that they do not grow the church. People do not grow the church. Jesus grows his church. The only command that Jesus gave to people in this line and in this area are the words, go make disciples. The concept is if you make disciples, Jesus will grow his church just like he said he would. Well, you think about that because when you have disciples that are trained to reach their social network, you release a power that works 24-7, and Christ will grow his church. Well, that's episode six. Thank you for listening. We will continue this in our next episode, episode seven, when we take a look at the theses 59 through 69. You have been listening to Kent Hunter's Prescriptions from a Church Doctor, presented by Church Doctor Ministries. If you've liked this episode, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to hear future episodes. Check out Kent Hunter's new book, Who Broke My Church? Seven Proven Strategies for Renewal and Revival, available now wherever books are sold.